Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Charles Delport, Bushwise senior trainer, about their courses and as well as the huge rewards and career options available to graduates. Joan Bering, Joan Burning, CEO of Eden to Addo, will be on the line and we'll be talking about this 400-kilometre hike, which is aiming for a spot on the world's best hikes list. Travel journalist Kerry Harvey will be back with us again, and this time we'll be finding out more about some of the lighthouses along our coast. And then Hein Kuchlenberg, CEO of Lamotte Wine Estate in Franschhoek, will be on the line, and we'll be chatting about his work with the Institute of Cape Wine Masters in continuing their education programs for previously disadvantaged and jobless people from the townships. And a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM, or you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, have you ever considered a career as a field guide, but the lack of available study loans has been putting you off? Well, now South African banks are providing loans for students wanting to complete a Field Guiding Association of South Africa certified course. And the huge rewards and career opportunities available are absolutely amazing. Well, to tell us more about this exciting career path, I'm joined now by Charles Delport, and he's a Bushwise senior trainer. Charles, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi there, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. Well, first of all, I have to ask, where are you? You must be at some exciting game farm or game. Where are you? Tell me where you uh, are. There, that's correct. Uh, at the moment, we are based roughly about an hour or so outside of Hootspreak, which is obviously in the heart of the Lowfeld. Mm. And we are based on the Makalali Private Game Reserve. Oh, should we be jealous of you, Charles? Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Anyone that gets to spend and live outside in the bush, uh, definitely. <laughs> absolutely. So I said you're a Bushwise senior trainer. Tell me a little bit about Bushwise and what you offer there. Okay, basically Bushwise, we choose to only sort of aim all of our studies in one direction. So we offer six months and one year professional field guide courses. Uh, and in short, uh, basically, or the, the 23-week course and the, the 50-week or the, the year course, if we can make it easy terms, run exactly the same. It's a six-month training period uh, in which we cover every possible qualification that you would need uh, to legally be a, a self-sufficient and qualified field guide in South Africa. And then we also offer the second half of the year program as a placement option. Uh, How Bushwise originally got started is the fact that most of your lodges and employers are looking for someone with quite a bit of experience in the industry and that know what they're doing. So by us using contacts, we place students as basically an intern into a lodge. Uh, So the six months experience that they gain through us on the course, plus in the six months uh, as an actual working intern, gives you that foot-in-the-door experience that everybody's looking for. Now, I was reading something rather disturbing, that, that most of your students up until now have been international students coming out here to do the course. And the South African students are almost getting left behind because there was nowhere for them to access study loans up until now. That is very true. Um, for quite some time, uh, banks sort of frowned upon the idea of field guiding as a career, and it's a short-lived career and all of that. Uh, but thanks to some hard work and dedication from some of our staff, we've convinced the banks to, or a lot of the major banks, to actually add us onto a list of accredited courses that they now also approve. 
and that they are happy to give study loans for. So we are very hopeful that this is a big step for a lot of people and that it will open new opportunities and new doors for them to enter what, as you said earlier, is or can only be an amazing career to do. Now, I mean, if you're saying that the banks looked upon this as not something that would be a, a sort of a, a lifetime sort of career, but, I mean, if I think like yourself, I'm sure, once you get into this job, I mean, the life of living out there with all these, you know, in the bush with these animals and seeing this sort of thing every day, I mean, who would want to go back to town? Exactly. I mean, I've done it for the better part of, well, I don't know, well over a decade, and, I mean, the, the sort of prospects from there onwards is just endless. You can choose to either go into the lodge management, reserve management. Uh, just The possibilities are endless. And while you're doing that, you are in probably one of the best careers you can wish for, doing things that ideally people pay to come and do every day. So I don't think you can ask for much better than that. All these international students, Charles, that are coming out here to do the course, do they then stay here and work as guides or do they go off somewhere else with this course under their belt? Um, In some occasions it goes both ways. Uh, Some people do come across in order to make a career out of it. Uh, Some choose to do it as a gap year project uh, just to gain a bit of life experience. Uh, but the course has also opened a lot of doors for them to do this, show commitment to things like that, and that opens doors for them either back home to go back to university or get into other programs that are similar back home and just carry on with something similar back in their own home countries. Now, you mentioned that your course pretty much sets them up for life as a field guide. You also mentioned that also they could work in, as lodge managers. And that, is that part of your course as well, or is that a whole separate thing that they would have to do? At this point, it's a, a separate thing that we are not aiming at, although there are other courses that they can look into. Uh, but quite often, guides, it's through the experience of working as a guide, they start picking up things in how to manage a lodge. So they'll move up the ranks into camp managers and eventually lodge managers, yes. Are there any age limits on when the, if, if somebody wants to come straight from school, or is there sort of a, an age limit, a young, sort of a bottom limit? You know, you can't be less than however many years old before you start doing the course, or is there uh, no limit? Obviously, we need our students in order for them to conduct game drives to have a license. So, yes, 18 is the minimum. And then for legal requirements, if you want to work as a guide full-time, you need to have a professional driver's permit, which basically just indemnifies you in case of accidents. And that you can only obtain when you are 21 years old. Oh, really? Okay. So, although you can do the course when you are 18, you can only do the placement aspect or work as a guide once you are 21. Do you have a sort of set number of people that you take every year? How many do you take on the course? Well, we obviously we run the two courses per year, and we can take a maximum of 22 students, which are then further divided into smaller groups to give a bit of a a hands-on training experience. Is that over the year and the six months, or is that the year is 22 and the six months is also 22? Uh, That's uh, the two courses per year, 22 at a time, um, and then they, they move on to the individual lodge placements where they do the internship. Is, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, when kids are sitting about thinking about what they're going to do after matric, you know, how many of them actually think about this? Do you guys go out there into the communities, into the schools and inform these youngsters that this is an option? We definitely try. Um, I do think it's, it's a very important thing to do. Uh, not a, a lot of youth know about the opportunities. 
And even though it might take them a while to get into it, it's definitely something that even if it just brews in the back of your mind, you can after a year or two start moving into that field and try and make the most of it. And the fact that the banks are now offering, as we said at the beginning, these these study loans for you know to be able to come and do the course. I mean, that's hopefully going to open this up even further for the locals to do it. Because uh, you know something like this, I I worry that you know our, our youth are not getting exposed to this because they couldn't get the study loans, and yet everybody's coming in from overseas on the fabulous exchange rate for them. And it's, it's you know we have we we're training all these international students, and we should be training more of our own. Exactly, and I do think that this is something that could very likely or most likely going to change the industry from here onwards uh, mm. if, it, if it means that it's more accessible for our local guys. And I mentioned also at the beginning that you were the senior trainer. So are you the guy in charge of all of these youngsters coming in to train? Uh, pretty much. Uh, we are quite a small team of trainers. Uh, at the moment, we've just got two trainers and then myself. Uh, so yeah, I'm basically just making sure that everyone stays in line and that uh, the course runs on program and that everyone that towards the end of the course uh, is at the level where they need to be in order to pass their final exams. And the course is done where you are now? Uh, Yes, everything is done on site. Uh, We use a variety of different reserves in our immediate vicinity. Uh, So yeah, that that all works out pretty nicely because you literally a stone's throw away from some of the most amazing wildlife sightings you can dream of. Because part of your course I was reading also you is is specialist birding and reptile orientation. Do these people coming on the course need some sort of background in wildlife or do they get taught everything once they get there? Uh, Really not at all. The only thing you really need is the passion to want to learn, obviously, because it is quite a study intensive course. And just uh, obviously, a love of nature. Uh, the rest of it, we take part. As you've said, we do a sort of a specialist birding course. The birding is a big market out there. We do a reptile orientation course. Uh, we do tracking courses. We do literally anything and everything that you could possibly want to or need as a guide. We have it covered as a part of our course. And this is big business with the international tourists. I mean, this is what they come out here for. Exactly. And South Africa has made its mark very much as the prime game viewing destination of Africa. And the the tourism industry itself just keeps on growing and growing and growing. And I think it's one of those things where in not just Africa, but specifically South Africa, we're never going to really battle on the tourism front of things. So there's always going to be a need for new up and coming guides all the time. Oh, definitely. So definitely something, if you have youngsters at home who haven't yet been thinking about what to do, they've got a passion for the outdoor life and the wildlife in particular, um, this sounds like definitely something to go off and do. How long have you guys been running for, Charles? Uh, Basically, we started the company up in around about 2006, and we haven't looked back since. And you're going pretty well with that? Uh, absolutely. We we haven't looked back for a single second. That sounds amazing. Well, as I said at the beginning, I'm very jealous of you and living out where you do and doing what you do. The rest of us have to be in the city, in an office, and you out there having a wonderful time outdoors with all these beautiful animals and enjoying yourself. And what a life. No, I absolutely will not trade it for anything <laughs> in the world. Well, hopefully there'll be lots of youngsters thinking that they'd like to have a life just like yours. I'll give out the website in a moment and maybe they'll, you'll be seeing them soon. When does your, your six-month course, does that start also at the beginning of the year? or We, we typically start, of course, every January, typically 7th of January and the 8th of July. So we've actually just kicked off just uh, our students. A new group of students arrived last night 
and today was the first official day on course. Well, something to put on your list for 2015. Gosh, I can't believe it's almost that now. But if people are thinking about uh, getting involved with this, you've got time still to book. But I'll give you the, the, the uh, website and you can go and have a look at all the information there. Charles, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening and telling us about your very enviable life. Um, and keep on enjoying it. Thank you very much. I was chatting there with Charles Delport. He's a Bushwise senior trainer. And if you'd like to find out more about the courses and about this wonderful life that Charles is having up there, take a look at the website. It's www.bushwise.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, the Eden to Addo Great Corridor hike is aiming for a spot on the world's best hikes list. This 400-kilometre hike starts in Nysna and ends at the Addo Elephant Park. And Jean Burning is CEO of Eden to Addo, another one with a fabulous place to live and a fabulous thing to do. Jean, good, e- Joan, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Corin. So I, was, I don't know if you heard me talking to Charles Delport there, who's working in uh, guiding and uh, training people in, in the art of guiding and also has this wonderful outdoor life. And you seem to have a similar one. Well, we live in one of the most beautiful areas in South Africa, I think. And tell me a little bit about the, Addo, the Eden to Addo Great Corridor Hike. I mentioned that you're aiming for a spot on the world's best hikes list. Yes, well, it's coming up for eight years now that we've done it. I've done it five times, and I'll be doing it again this year. Um, it's a, a yearly occurrence, and this year we'll be hiking in October. Um it's the most biodiverse area on the planet. So we we walk through the forest, fenbos, thickets, succulent karoo, and uh, nama karoo. So it's really varied. And uh, we walk over seven mountain ranges. And what's uh, quite amazing is that uh, we live in Fenberg Bay, and all these coastal areas are highly populated. But once we start our walk, we walk for days and days and days on end. In fact, it's 20 days long. Um, we walk through the most incredible wilderness areas. And this is just in our backyard. Um, and I think that's the message we're trying to get to everyone is that, you know, we all, we're always faced with these huge global problems of climate change and the elephants are being poached and the rhinos are being poached. But I think... Uh, one needs to think about what you can do in your own backyard. And that's what we're trying to do is, is um, try and clear the aliens, um, create corridors linking protected areas in our own backyard. You mentioned the kinds of, of um, different things you walk through, like the forest and the fanboss and the thicket. And I was actually reading somewhere, it's actually quite amazing, in, they, you walk through five biomes on this hike. But in just one of them, one of the biomes, the fanboss consists of 9,000 species, of which 6,192 are found absolutely nowhere else. I think you've done your research. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's just one of the biomes. So, in fact, we have um, a letter in our grubby little hand from the famous and one and only A-grade botanist scientist from the NMMU, which states that this, in fact, is the most biodiverse corridor on the planet. This is Richard Cowling from um, Nelson right. Mandela Metropolitan right, University. But the, the whole thing of the, how it started, because, I mean, it's, it's grown from where you started. I mean, it started as a conservation project initially to raise money to link um, the three mega reserves. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about all of that? 
That's right. So, so we had this concept of linking protected areas because, in a way, um, we've overcome uh, apartheid in terms of human-on-human apartheid, but we still have this enormous apartheid between man and nature. So um, it's all very well putting a fence around uh, a park and then thinking that you can conserve the animals within that park. But, of course, that doesn't work because... You have inbreeding. I mean, you just need to look at Addo Elephant National Park where they have to consistently bring in elephants from, say, Kruger or lions from somewhere else so that you have a mix of genetic material. Otherwise, you'll get inbreeding and eventually you get um, deformed uh, offspring and it's exactly the same as humans, of course. So, so the whole concept now in conservation in general is worldwide that we need to look at linking um, protected areas. And this is happening in Europe, it's happening in Australia. Um, in Europe, they've got a huge project of corridors connecting the Pyrenees to the, the Alps and so on, and, and, and trying to reintroduce or in, protect the wolves that are there uh, and bring them back and the bears and so on. So that's happening in Europe. And in Australia, there's a huge corridor connecting the north, uh, northern coastal area to the southern coastal area. Um, so it's there are massive areas that, that people are looking at. There's the Y to Y corridor in, in America, which is um, from the Yellowstone to Yukon. Um, so our little corridor, I mean, I, I thought it was a huge corridor, but in fact it's a little corridor in comparison to the rest of the world. So what are you linking the Garden Route National Park, the Bavians Kloof World Heritage Site, and the Addo Elephant Park? That's correct. And they, and they what, what's fabulous about it is the fact that the Garden Route National Park is not fenced, and nor is the Bavians, and in fact we call it now the Bavians World Heritage Site. So both of those parks are unfenced and uh, in the Garden Route National Park we obviously have lots of leopards, we have bushbuck and we have bookies and so on, but we also still have the last truly wild remaining elephants that uh, some people say there's one, others say there's eight um, in the actual Garden of Eden, which is a small section of the Garden of National. And then in the Bavians itself, we still have um, black rhino the, and we have um, buffalo, and they're free roaming, so they, they can go wherever they like. And, and that's the general concept is to try and get away from this um, apartheid thinking of man versus nature. It's, uh, we're all together in this. And if we don't look after nature uh, and or be, consider ourselves part of it, and then you know we we're not going to have uh, sufficient food supply. We're not going to have um, we're going to destroy the climate and so on. So we need to start thinking about us being in fact part of nature. We are nature. Now you mentioned doing the walk, the annual walk, the 400 kilometre Eden to add a great um, a corridor hike. And um, is this obviously how you raise your money? How many people come and do this every year? Anything between 15 and 20 people, and it's uh, becoming a little bit like the Camino. In fact, we get very many people who've done the Camino who now want to do this particular hike, and it's becoming quite an iconic hike in South Africa. Um, of course, it's 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 more difficult than the Camino in that. The Camino, well, the Camino is, of course, longer. It's 800 kilometers. Well, people pop in and out of it all the time. I mean, they, some of them do a bit here and a bit there. They don't do the whole thing, all of them. Do they all no, do they the don't. whole thing no, of, of this, though? Mm. No, of course they don't. But um, in the, 
people who, who come on our hike say, okay, well, we've done the Camino, so this is going to, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll manage fine. But, of course, ours is a little bit more difficult in that we're in wilderness areas. Um, the Camino has roads, little villages, you stay in villages, whereas we stay in tents. We, we put up tents for everybody at night, so you don't need to carry anything. You just carry a day pack. And um, we, we have uh, two four-by-fours that follow um, and put up tents and make the fire and make delicious meals on the fire. So all you really have to do is walk. That's all you have to think about is putting one foot in front of the other in the most spectacular uh, areas and beautiful vistas, um, one mountain ridge after the other. How long, does, how long does it take you to do this? How, how long do you plan on you know, taking to do one of these hikes? Well, it's 20 days, and, and that's actually sometimes quite difficult for you know, business people to do. Um, so we are um, offering two shorter hikes as well, so that people can take, say, six days. So we'll do, for instance, the garden route section and then the Bavian section, um, just, just so that people can experience that. So maybe they could do six days in the garden route, and then the next year they could do six days in the Bavians. So, so of course, the big thing is do 20 days because you've, you've done that 400 kilometers. You do about 20 to 25 k's a day. And after that, I can't tell you how magnificent you feel. I mean, especially in October, just before September, and you, you, your whole body is toned and your mind is clear. So it's, it's the most wonderful experience. And you know, if you do one week, um, you don't get the same feeling. And the second week, you're starting to get into it. And by the third week, you're flying, and you you feel like you could walk to Cairo. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you just do this once a year, uh, Joan? Yeah, we just do it once a year at this stage. Um, and like I said, in the other we have other months within the year, we have the shorter hikes. And all the funds, obviously, this is not something you can just come and walk on for free. This is obviously a paid hike, and all that money goes back into the conservation projects that you work on there? That's right. So Interadder's whole policy is to utilize the beauty of the area to protect it. So we're developing other products like uh, mountain biking races, um, trail running, and so on, so that we, we, people can come, see how beautiful it is, pay whatever they pay, knowing that what they're doing is paying towards protecting the biodiversity in the area. Gosh, it sounds like one of those absolutely amazing, amazing things. And as I mentioned, you're aiming for a spot on the world's best hikes list. How do you get there? Or are you on the on sort of on a, a pre-list now and waiting for the final outcome? What's happening with that? Well, we just keep pushing for that. Um, so we're coming up for 10 years. And now in, in 2016, where it's quite interesting, we'll have some of, um, quite a few of our first hikers, because our inaugural hike was in 2006. And, um, I mean, that, that was heavy going because we weren't sure where we were going and got lost. And, you know, the, uh, the people that took part in that particular hike, um, were, were really brave, I must say. And <laughs> so, uh, we had floods that year. Anyway, so we got over that and we, we managed and everyone was ecstatic afterwards because they'd actually done it. Um, so in 2016, we hope to get a lot of the first hikers back. Um, so just in terms of length of time and the fact that it's been successful year after year and uh, that it's, it's iconic, it's, uh, it's valuing the biodiversity of the area, the fact that it's you know, the biodiverse area, 
all of that contributes to wards being one of the ten top hikes worldwide. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on that one. But, Joan, just before I go, how did you get into all of this? Is your background in conservation? Where do you, how did you get started with doing this? Um, my background is uh, scientific, and um, but uh, I spent quite a lot of time farming. And, well, a lot of the people that are in, in the corridor areas between um, the various parks are in fact farmers. So, so I have the background both on the scientific level and then also on the farming level to be able to communicate because it's all about communication and in fact it's you know, corridors of the mind as well as corridors on the land. Um, it's, it's the concept of not just thinking this may sticky grond, you know, this is my mm. little ground and I'll do what I like uh, because what you do actually affects everybody around you. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I suppose um, where we live and looking out from Plettenberg Bay, we have these beautiful vistas, we can see the mountains, we can see um, the effect of alien vegetation, for instance, taking over, um, and that's what stimulated me to do something about it. Now, one of the things you do is clearing alien vegetation, so you must have a group of, of very dedicated people that help you with all of this. Well, we have what we call the Queen of Aliens um, as one of Interadder's founders, and that's Pam Booth. And um, we've just managed to raise uh, quite a large sum of money to clear aliens in the Kielmans River. Um, there was a study done in the Nyasa in the area where they looked at all the threats over the next, say, 20, 30 years. What, what are the threats in this area? And one of the big threats, of course, is water. And will we have enough water? And what they found was that alien vegetation, the pine trees and the wattle trees were absorbing as much water from the area as was the water supply to Nisna itself. So in other words, Nisna was using the same amount of water as what the aliens were drinking in the mountains. Mm-mm. So um, so the money we've raised is to clear aliens in one of our corridors, which is the Kielbans River Corridor. So we'll be clearing out the wattle, and that's all Pam Booth's doing, and clearing... Uh, um, pine trees, and then we, we want to start uh, a little entrepreneurial businesses uh, making charcoal and then selling the charcoal. And obviously there's huge other possible entrepreneurial possibilities such as making um, interesting furniture, say garden furniture, for instance, out of wattle and so on. Mm, I was about to say, you know, those trees could be put to good use rather than drinking up all the water of Nisner. Exactly. <laughs> but exactly. for, for those wanting to come and do the hike, I mean, how, how, how early do, do, do the places get booked up? Because the, the number of people you, that go, you said, isn't that many. So how far in advance do people need to book for this? Um, well, we're already getting entries for next year. For next year? Wow, okay. Um, and uh, so, so the sooner the better. And all they need to do is go to our website, which um, I'm sure you'll give at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And we have a little uh, video, a little short clip of about two and a half minutes um, on our front page of, of our website and you can see what it looks like and what it's all about. Uh, once people enter, they, they, we send them a form and they have to fill that in and of course we send them a little booklet which explains exactly which ship to buy, uh, what gear to take, which um, type of um, sleeping bag to buy um, and so, so it's very well organized um, uh, we've had some people who are 
quite age take part. We 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 had an entry this year of a 77-year-old who's just emailed us yesterday to say that he might not be able to take part because he suddenly fell ill. But so it's not, you know, people think if you have to be strong and young, that's not in fact the case. Um, the average age is 55, and just about every year we've had a 70-year-old um, who's outwalked me, which I'm not very happy about, and they come <laughs> screaming past me. And <laughs> Shouldn't be allowed, Joan. Hey, Shouldn't wait be a minute. allowed. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> but um, often the, 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 the older um, participants do very well, which is fantastic. So it sounds like it's quite a doable thing. And uh, if you're wanting to go, as Joan said, I suggest you go and put your name down now because that seems to get booked up pretty fast. And also bear in mind that when you do this, your entry fee goes towards wonderful projects of conservation, alien clearing. It's just one of those things where it's a win-win for everybody. Joan, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight and enjoy your next walk. Thank you very, very much, Cara. Thank you for your time. Good night to you. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Joan Burning is CEO of Eden to Addo. And if you'd like more information or if you'd find, like to find out about doing the hike, take a look at the website. It's Eden to Addo. It's E-E-D-E-N and then T-O-A-D-D-O. Eden to Addo.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Kerry Harvey is back with us again this evening. You might have heard her speaking a few a, a while ago about where she lives in Paternoster. And we mentioned that very close to Paternoster is this wonderful, wonderful lighthouse called the Columbine Lighthouse. But there are loads more. Actually, there's 45 lighthouses, 45 that are still um, illuminating our coastline. Very few of them are manned, obviously. But uh, Kerry said she'd love to come back and talk to us a little bit more about those. So she's back on the line. Kerry, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, nice to be back. And before we continue, with us just a reminder if you want to find out more about where Kerry goes and what she does you can have a look at her website it's www.kerry-harvey.com right Kerry so we spoke about the Columbine Lighthouse the last time we were chatting but there's still a whole lot of others up the west coast has got loads of them I suppose because it's the perfect place to wreck your ship if you really were so inclined (laughs) absolutely well our whole our whole coastline actually is is quite a good place to wreck a ship if, mm. you, if you're in the mood. Um, so yes, the West Coast has a whole lot of lighthouses, um, some extremely beautiful ones and also um, island ones, for for example, Dasson Island, um, which has a red and white banded lighthouse, which is rather stunning. And then Robin Island as well, um, which started off, I understand, as a literal fiertouring, a tower with a fire built on top. Wow, that's going back a long way. It's going back a long way, but yes, the whole coastline has stunning lighthouses and all completely different. I'm not sure if you're aware, but a lighthouse can't be the same as any other within a 250-kilometre stretch of coastline. I didn't know that. So they all have to be completely unique because by day they're also visual beacons, so they need to look different. Yeah, well, there, there's a couple around here, sort of Cape Point and the Cormacay Lighthouse and all those. And, I mean, there's this wonderful story of the ship that, that mistook, I think it was somewhere around Cormacay area, mistook that for um, coming around into the harbour in Cape Town and eventually actually ran his ship up on the beach and they all climbed off and walked off. I mean, that was a long time ago. Mm. Um, you know, because they, they do mistake sort of the, the, the coast is so similar in certain points of it that they, if there weren't these beacons, they would actually, you know, keep, pulling off in the wrong place and ending yeah. up on the beach. Yeah. Actually, to, just to 
extrapolate on that. I heard a story recently on the Eastern Cape Coast where people, well, this is really going back a long way, but people living close to the coastline used to shine lights out of their windows at night to mimic a lighthouse, and ships used to run aground, and then they used to loot the ship. <gasps> really? <laughs> so, which was an interesting way to make a living, but I believe this did happen. Okay, right, yeah. moving on. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the lighthouses up the west coast to start with. Well, Columbine, uh, Columbine is my lighthouse um, because that's right at Paternoster. But as you go further north, um, there's also a beautiful black and white lighthouse at Durangbai. Um, and in fact, even closer north from Paternoster at St. Helena Bay is a tiny, tiny little lighthouse uh, with a Greek dome on the top, which is at Shelley Point. The Durangbai lighthouse can't be visited by by the public. You can obviously see it, but you can't enter it. Um, but the little one at Shelley Point is right there standing on the rocks and apparently also a favorite backdrop for wedding photographs on the West Coast. Okay. Um, and then the Columbine Lighthouse can be visited and it's an extremely beautiful lighthouse to see. You can climb the tower as well, right into the dome and actually see the light and the prisms up close. And it's also a particularly beautifully maintained lighthouse with everything always highly polished and, and in perfect nick. So, and there's also the lighthouse keeper, Yapi Khrif, has kept a whole lot of memorabilia from the old days. So you can see the old, what the old bellows from the foghorn look like and the old hydrograph and barograph which they used for weather readings. You know, all of that has been replaced by modern technology now, so it's, it's quite a treat to see these things. And uh, the East Coast has some rather interesting stories as well. Yes. Yapi, in fact, tells the story of, of being at St. Lucia and uh, watching a ship being scuttled and, you know, being blown up so, so that the debris can be carried away the sea but the east coast you know is also it's also quite a treacherous coastline uh, lest you forget that the east coast bears the brunt of all sorts of dramatic weather from madagascar and and mauritius all those cyclones that come in off the ocean so while it may be warm and pleasant to swim in in summer it also gets it gets quite wild there was a rather interesting story of something happening at bird island is, is that the one where the ghost is well, you know, the lighthouse keepers do love to talk about ghosts, and they're apparently ghosts at many of the lighthouse towers, but the the Bird Island one is probably one of the better known. And I'm told that even to date, um, the Portnet staff who need to go to Bird Island to do maintenance refuse to sleep over because they say their blankets are pulled off at night. And the story goes that it's a lighthouse keeper of old's wife um, who suffered terribly from depression, being very isolated on Bird Island, um, and drowned in one of the reservoirs. And, and people claim that this is her ghost that pulls their blankets off at night. So <laughs> that's one of the well-known mm, stories. And, okay. and, you know, the Portnet people are still not wanting to go there. I, I don't know. There must be something yeah. in it, I think. <laughs> maybe, it's just the, maybe it's just the thought of it. Maybe they, they've been told about it, and it's just that I don't want to be there if it happens. And maybe you know? their blankets do just fall off at night. Why I don't is that? know, but that, that story's mm. been going for a long time, and nobody's disputing it. There's also Cape Recife up the East Coast as well. 
Cape Recife is, is just off Port Elizabeth, also a very beautiful lighthouse, black and white banded, and um, that guards Thunderbolt Reef, which is where quite a few ships have come to grief as well. It's a submerged reef. And yes, there's, there go stories um, about Cape Recife as well, lighthouse keepers of old who have passed away there and who are said to still live and walk in the tower. You mentioned the other lighthouses on islands, and that's those, there's three. Is it Dasson Island, Bird Island, and Robin Island are the three? Yes, and there's also a rock lighthouse, which is um, Roman rock just off Cape Town. In Simonstown, yes. I think that's our only rock lighthouse where the, the lighthouse takes up the whole rock and it appears to, to have its feet in, in the ocean. Well, I must say that I actually have to drive past the oldest lighthouse every day when I come to work. So it's oh, really? that's, that's the Greenpoint Lighthouse. Yes. And that was built, what, I think 1824. And that's literally, I have to drive past it every day when I come to work. I, I am actually v- I'm very blessed to work in a place where I, when I come to work, I pass this beautiful lighthouse and I can look at the sea. Because the Absolutely. sea is literally right outside the door. Yes. So I should. I was actually listening to someone the other day who said, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And I've decided <laughs> that's my motto now, too blessed to be stressed. Because if I can have a look at the sea and lighthouses every day, really. You and know. there's something about a lighthouse at the ocean. Absolutely. I'm not sure what it is, but there's a nostalgia about lighthouses that, well, for me anyway, mm. and for many other people, which is, I think, why... Some of our lighthouses, the the exact number that are open to the public change all the time depending on where maintenance is being done. But there's quite a few lighthouses, eight or ten of ours, that are open to the public. You can actually stay in them, can't you? Not literally in the lighthouse because the lighthouse keepers um, never actually stayed in the physical lighthouse. Mm. But their houses are right around the base of the tower. So, yes, I mean, Columbine, for instance, you can stay at the lighthouse in an old lightkeeper's house because they're they're no longer all used by lightkeepers. They've been renovated for self-catering accommodation. The same at Cape St. Blaise in Mossel Bay. And there is even a, a lighthouse route now. Yes, well, that's uh, that's pretty. The route is pretty much if you want to drive between the lighthouses mm. that are open to the public to visit, um, or to stay at those that offer accommodation as well. But that's something quite special and quite unique, I think. Also, because South Africa is one of just a handful of countries in the world that still has lighthouse keepers at lighthouses. You know, the rest of the world has has gone technical, or, or I don't even know how you'd put it. They've they're automated, completely automated. But even even the South African lights that are automated, many still have lighthouse keepers as well that are there to do maintenance and just to keep an eye on things. You had also spoke in your article about um, a lighthouse keeper called Andres de Jacha, who's been around doing this for about 40 years now and is now retired um, under his favorite light at Cape St. Francis. That's right. And what's quite interesting too, well, Andres tells wonderful stories about the old days and how they used to bring fuel to the lighthouse along the beach at Cape St. Francis in ox wagons before there were roads. And he also tells about the days when they used to use the fat from fat-tailed sheep to actually fuel the light. Um, And then there was a period where lights were wound up and you had to wind them up every two hours, run up the tower, wind up the light. It worked on a clock mechanism, which slowly unwound as the light, but enabled the light to turn. 
So he has fabulous stories to tell, and he's been at many lighthouses along the coast as well. His whole life he was a lighthouse keeper. And then, very interestingly, his son is also a lighthouse keeper and was also a keeper at Cape St. Francis. I think he's, he's since retired too. But that happens quite frequently where father and son were lighthouse keepers. It's almost in the blood, I think. Now, these lighthouses that are open to the public, are there going to be people there that can tell you some of these stories of old or show you around, or do you kind of have left to get on with it yourself? Mostly left to get on with it yourself, but the lighthouse keepers, the lighthouses that are open to the public generally have lighthouse keepers in residence, and it's up to you, the public, to actually engage with them and, and speak to them and ask them questions. And and most of them are, are very, very open and you know and warm and wanting to talk about what they do and about their life at lighthouses so um that's yeah but that's pretty much up to individuals to engage well if anyone's interested in going to have a look at some of these lighthouses the ones that are open to the public there is a number uh, you can call it's 021 021- Four four nine five one seven one zero two one four four nine five one seven one, and they'll be able to tell you exactly which of those lighthouses are open, how the accommodation works, and all of that. It might be something different to go and do on your next trip around the country. Before you go, here I was bragging about driving past every day on the way to work the oldest lighthouse in the country, um, which was in in eighteen twenty four. The Greenpoint Lighthouse was built, but you were telling me about one that's uh, just a little bit older than that. Just a touch older, Corin. <laughs> <laughs> the Pharos, the Pharos Lighthouse in Alexandria in Egypt is, is, I understand, claimed to be the oldest lighthouse on record, and I just find it fascinating. It's, it's dated to 250 BC, and it was literally also a fire on the top of a tower. It was also one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it stood from 250 BC until the 13th century, when it was apparently destroyed by an earthquake. But I just, that lighthouses have been going for that long, I think that's maybe where some of the nostalgia around them comes from. It's really, it's really nice to hear about that because, you know, you read some of the stories of shipwrecks around our coast here in South Africa and you sort of wonder to yourself, well, you know, okay, so two ships have wrecked there. Um, maybe you should put up a lighthouse. It's sort of, in some cases, it sort of took them a while to figure out maybe there ought to warn ships that maybe you're going to crash here. Indeed, yes. Our, our coastline is absolutely littered with shipwrecks. Mm. If you were to see a map with a dot for each shipwreck, it's virtually a solid line around I've, the South uh, African coastline. I've actually it's got amazing. A, I've got a book written by a local Capetonian person here um, about the shipwrecks. I mean, it's actually a big fat book of, mm. of just which ships have wrecked around this this coast here. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's truly impressive. Well, that's, it's a bit ridiculous. You sort of think to yourself, well, jeepers, you know, how was your navigation, first of all? And secondly, maybe we should have put up more lighthouses earlier. Yes. You know, because it's been, I and mean, even once those, I mean, there's been some wrecks here in, in right, literally almost in front of where I am now, right here in Greenpoint, that, that wrecked in the 70s. I mean, it's not as if it was a long time ago. So, I mean, the lighthouses were there. They must have had good navigation. But there was the, the coastline here is treacherous. Well, you know, the last wreck of, of Paternoster was 2004. Mm. So it's still happening. It's still happening. Even with the lighthouses.
You weren't shining your lights out of your windows at that night, were you? Not in that Paternoster? night, no. Not that night. Oh, okay. All right. I thought maybe you were trying to pick up on the East, Eastern the Eastern Cape people sort of flashing their lights out the windows. <laughs> not you. Not okay, me, not no. you. Okay, well, well, we'll let you off this time. Kerry, it's been delightful chatting with you about lighthouses, but, you know, we still haven't got round to the rest of the West Coast, so you're going to unfortunately have to get phoned again. I hope you don't mind. No we'll problem. chat further about that. Lovely, thank you. Thanks so much. I was chatting there with Kerry Harvey, and she's a freelance travel journalist. You can read more about what she does and where she goes on her fabulous new website. It's www.kerry, K-E-R-I, kerry-harvey.com, and you'll be able to find out all about where she goes, what she does. And if you'd like to find out more about lighthouses, and if you'd like to stay in one, some of them are open to the public, you can call 021-449-5171, and you don't get to stay actually in the physical lighthouse itself. They've got self-catering accommodation right there, but you can't actually stay inside the lighthouse. But if there is a lighthouse keeper there, I'm sure they'll be able to give you a tour, give you some information. Delightful. I've done some time. I've, I've spent some time in some of the lighthouses around here, and honestly, it's well worth a visit. Time to travel with Karen Key. I've got Hein Kuchlenberg on the line with me this evening, and he's the CEO of La Motte Wine Estate in Franschhoek. And uh, recently he was awarded Personality of the Year by the Institute of Cape Wine Masters. And there is so much to do with that award, but there's lots to talk about as far as La Motte is concerned. Hein, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Good to be with you. Now, that was presented to you at the Institute's AGM in recognition of the work that you've done, and it's, it's a lot. You seem to be involved in so many things out at Lamotte. Yeah, I think Lamotte is as wonderful wine farms, traditional family history, heritage, uh, and I think we're living in such a beautiful country and, and beautiful valley and, uh, here in France. Now, one of the things that are you are involved with in helping the Cape Wine Academy is to continue the education programs in the wine, in the wine industry. What are you doing in that regard? You know, we all know education and un- unemployment are the two main opportunities in South Africa. And uh, remember, we're in the wine business, and the wine business is a tourism business. And uh, I think we have to use tourism and the offering that we put to tourists to educate our workforce and then to employ more people. Part of the of the facilities that we can use in South Africa is the Cape Wine Academy. It started many years ago with uh, Stellamos Farmers Winery and now independent company. But as I said, back to tourism, Cape Wine Academy is one of the platforms that we really can use uh, to help to educate people on wine education. But that's only one of the platforms that we can use. There's many others that we can uh, use to put the offering that tourists expect when they visit South Africa and and especially the wine business. Now, one of the things that you're doing, one of the programs, I think it saw 158 young people from townships or other previously disadvantaged areas being trained as wine advisors and sommeliers at the, by the Cape Wine Academy. Training like that can take them all over the place, all over the world, in fact. No, for sure. That's very exciting. And that was uh, one that we negotiated with uh, Minister of Tourism, Martinez van Skalkwijk, uh, two years ago. And by doing that, they allocated uh, 
quite a lot of uh, funding uh, for South African wine industry uh, and especially the Cape Wine Academy uh, to train about 160 young people in wine advisory level, but also uh, then the potential to go to sommelier level uh, within the Cape Wine Academy. And that was a very interesting program uh, using all the talents that we have in the townships, a mentorship program together, get those kids uh, after one year into a job uh, allocated in different sectors in South Africa from the hotel, restaurant business and, and all the tourist-related uh, industries. Uh, so a very exciting program that the Cape Wine Academy executed last year. Do you find that there's a lot of interest in young people to move into this world of wine? Do you th- or is it something that you have to sort of explain to them and say, well, maybe you'd like to do this, or do you find the interest coming from them? I don't think maybe from the wine industry point of view, we've done enough to educate people outside the industry, in, in our our industry. Uh, but I think more uh, the wine industry sees itself as part of the tourism industry. And, and that's where the exciting part is lying now. Uh, because it's not only becoming winemakers anymore, it's all different fields around tourism that's opening up for people outside the industry. Well, there's a very exciting joint venture that you're doing with a Chinese importer. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's the first joint venture from a Chinese company to a South African company, and they invested in a winery in South Africa. And part of the the way uh, of us selling wine in China is through incentive program that we do with with their network. Uh, so last year September we had about 740 that we flew in for one week. Uh, and we really entertained them in Cape Town, all the different scenic scenery places, and then uh, also one or two days in the winelands, make them truly ambassadors for South African wine. I send them back to China, and hopefully they sell more wine. This year in harvest time, we had, for harvesting experience, uh, 240 people visiting us, uh, and they forecast for next year uh, to bring over 1,000 for the week. But you also take people over to China as well. I mean, you're taking marketing and sales teams and winemakers and chefs traveling to China to present courses over there. Yeah, you remember, South Africa is such a small percentage of the imported product in China. We are probably only 2% uh, of the imported product, where France is over 40% and and, uh, Australia is about 18%. So we still have a lot to do to promote South Africa as a wine country in China. Uh, part of that, uh, our strategy is to, uh, to at least one, uh, twice a year take some of our people. We've translated, translated some of the material of the Cape Wine Academy into Mandarin. Uh, and then we present uh, South Africa as a wine drinking nation also uh, in China, uh, doing different programs with different people. This year we've added now our chef being with us, also doing the food and wine offering. And that worked really well. And we did about seven different functions all over China. Uh, And that's definitely one that we'll um, repeat next year. How do the Chinese respond to our wines? Do they like them? I mean, they must do. They're coming out here enough. Do they enjoy the wines here? Yeah, for sure. They like the wine. You know, and uh, I, I think South Africa is not new world. It's not old world. It's somewhere between on the style point of view. Uh, and uh, if I look at the, the Chinese palate at the moment, more, the southern part, uh, it's more white wine. It's their food is more seafood. German Riesling is doing very well in that region. Uh, but also our Chenin Blanc is doing very well in that region. Uh, and then the, the rest of China is mainly red wine. 
So we're doing a Shiraz Pinotaz blend with the spiciness of our Shiraz, uh, working really well with uh, the spiciness of uh, their food. So the Shiraz and Shiraz Vionia is, is uh, Shiraz Pinotaz is doing very well for us uh, in, in, in the rest of China at the moment. Pinotage, I mean, that, that is not something I think that's possibly that well known over there. So how have they taken to that? Because that's our very own special wine here in South Africa. It's developed here. Yeah, but you, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of the things that, that, that's also relevant for South Africa because people can remember Pinotages from South Africa where you have Riesling from uh, Germany and, mm. uh, and, and all the different things all around the world that's unique. There's the Pinotage that we produce in South Africa with the blend of Shiraz is really working well with the spiciness of the food in China. Uh, so from a, from a drinking point of view, it's, it's suited to uh, um, their palate. Now, I mentioned that you'd run this program with almost 160 young people and the wonderful, wonderful um, outcome that, that you got from that. What is the future looking like here, Hein? Is this something that will be continued every year or what are you looking at in this respect? Uh, that program is a Cape Wine Academy program, and, and yes, uh, it was originally negotiated that we do a four-year program. It was changed again by Martinez and his department, Minister of uh, Tourism and his department, to become only a one-year program, and then they move now to the restaurant uh, waiters, and and it's a different program. It's not with the Cape Wine Academy anymore. Uh, so it was like a once-off, uh, one-year program, but originally we negotiated a four-year period. Uh, but unfortunately, that was how it's uh, uh, worked out now. And while we're on the topic of things that you are involved with, I was reading some information on the Lamotte website about your ethical trading initiative and your, the, the development of Denegir, which is a modern village that you have erected for your worker community. You've done a lot of work on the farm in that regard as well. Do you want to tell me a little bit about the ethical trading initiative? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, we, there's industry norms that we, um, as an industry, have to work towards and, and make sure that we uh, we apply to uh, what's best for the workforce. Uh, and and uh, But we have to be responsible in whatever we do. We started with our own workers with um, a housing pro- project many years ago, and that one is, is really working well for our situation. But I don't think there's there's a one-suit-all model, fit-all model type of thing. I, I, I think from a from an industry point of view, we have to work uh, very well with, with government at the moment to, to find a, a suitable situation where the workforce also get employment and the workforce also get uh, equity uh, because at the, at the end, it is in our responsibility to make sure uh, that there's equity also available for people working on, on the farms. Hein, it's been delightful chatting with you this evening and thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much, Karen. I've been chatting there with Hein Kuchlenberg, and he's the CEO of La Motte, a wine estate out in Franschhoek. And if you'd like to contact them, the number is 021-876-8000, or take a look at the website. It's www.la-motte.com, so it's la-motte.com. 
And, well, that's the end of the show for this evening. But before I go, let me just give you a heads up on some of the things coming up next week. If you were listening to the show earlier tonight, you would have heard me chatting about a, a possible career choice in field guiding, which sounds just absolutely wonderful. And I was talking there to Charles Delport of Bushwise. And if you want to find out more about that, it's bushwise.co.za. So I'm staying in the vein of what you can do as a career in the tourism industry. Coming up next week, I'm going to be speaking to some people about something called business in a box and that's flight site and they have flight site agents so basically a travel agent but you become your own boss and you run your own company basically under the auspices of flight site and uh, they, they, it's called business in a box so if you're looking at possibly a career in tourism from that perspective stay tuned for the show next week well anyway as i was saying this is the end of the show for this week i'm karen key thanks for joining me this evening and just a reminder if you need any information about something you've heard on time to travel this evening you can find it on facebook just go to travel on safm or you can email me on travel at safm.co.za and i'll be back with you next monday evening just after nine with the law report and it's our monthly law clinic next week with attorney Nicolene Skuman Lowe. It's the law report on Monday the 13th of July. Well it's time now for some nighttime music with Stephen Kirker and a whole lot of hopefully once again exciting soccer tonight Stephen. Well yes that too it can't possibly be the same as last night can it? You never know. Yes, we'll be keeping our eye on uh, the Netherlands-Argentina match. Muhammad Ali checking in on that one. Be sure to listen out next Wednesday. I will be uh, looking for new work ideas, uh, perhaps in the the travel industry. You can get uh, those next week on Time to Travel. Yep, it's uh, nighttime music until midnight, uh, peeking into the football, but also chilling out with uh, a variety of uh, mellow music.